You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Welcome to The Open Door, a show based on the words in Revelation, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. This is WCAT Radio's longest-running show, which opened the door to the radio station in October 2016. It's currently offered by Jim Hanink, Mario Ramos Reyes and Friends, and remains open to the love of God in its call to build a culture of life and a just social order through the panel's discussion of the Catholic social teaching principles of solidarity, subsidiarity, and economic democracy. The Open Door also explores nonviolence, distributism, and communitarianism. So join us at The Open Door, where you too can be part of the conversation. Welcome to The Open Door. Jim Hannock here with fellow panelists Mario Ramos-Reyes and Christopher Zender. I'm delighted to announce, delighted, that Mario has just published a new book, Filosofia para Tiempos Misteriosos, Intercontinental, and we'll be turning to that once, once we have done a few other things, but, but boy, will we ever turn to that. Okay, so today we're discussing human dignity, its Christian roots, and whether secular liberalism can sustain it. Our special guest and returning guest is Nathaniel Peters. He is contributing editor of Public Discourse and director of the Morningside Institute. He's recently written an insightful and historically informed essay on our topic for public discourse. First, first a prayer. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, granted by the gift of the same spirit, we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in this consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Nathaniel, let's start at the beginning. How do you define human dignity? Um, well, thank you so much, um, uh, James and Mario and Christopher, for having me on um, yet again. I'm delighted to be with you today. Um, so for the purposes of the, the article that I wrote, um, I tried to define human dignity rather simply and without great philosophical complexity. Um, human dignity, for at least for my purposes, is the idea that all human beings are in some way special or worthy of respect simply because they are human beings um, and irrespective of their particular merits or abilities. Um, so the goal with that, of course, is to kind of limit an understanding of human dignity that would exclude 
um, different different people based on um, you know their their age uh, based on their especially cognitive capacities physical capacities um, you could get more detailed than that but that was kind of what I I set out to set out to claim that's a, a straightforward launch for us now Mario as always, will take us into the deep. <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, one of the questions that I was asking myself after reading your piece is, um, why do you think it's important for us in this uh, 21st century to talk about uh, dignity? Even though I'm, I'm talking about those who are coming like us from the Christian experience, because there are other people who are out there talking about also human, uh, about human dignity. However, it seems that we have uh, different, give different meaning to the same concept. What do you think is important for us to, to talk about this? Let me give a, a couple of answers. I mean, one is that it, it strikes me that human dignity is one of those areas, kind of like uh, human rights, where we can come to similar conclusions about how we should be acting in society, even if we arrive at those conclusions from different justifications. I've, for other things, I've been reading Jacques Maritain a lot, so that idea is very much in my in my mind. <laughs> um, you know, that uh, even though, you know, that I, I might, I might kind of arrive at, uh, uh, arrive at similar conclusions about, say, the rights of the, of the mentally ill or the physically handicapped. Um, and th I might arrive at similar conclusions to those from other people who come at the question of human dignity um, very differently. Um, but I think another, I think another reason that it's important to continue talking about human dignity and insisting on it is that as society further secularizes and further places an emphasis as kind of on human autonomy as the highest good, those human beings that are less autonomous, um, are therefore seen as being kind of less worthy of respect. Um, their lives are, are less important. Um, and I think that's something that we very much need to combat. I mean, and, and you see this in a variety of ways. I mean, a number of years ago, there was an article. It was, it was the cover article of the New York Times Magazine by a woman who was an attorney, herself physically disabled, and it was about a conversation she had with Peter Singer, um, the Australian philosopher at um, Princeton. And Peter Singer, in fact, I was just talking with some undergraduates last night about this. Peter Singer is known I mean, for many things. One of them is for his advocacy of effective altruism, trying to help as many people as possible. Peter Singer publicly advocates for donating to organizations like Oxfam, um, has given away you know, lots of money. Obviously, he's not, you know, like rich, like a tech entrepreneur, but uh, he's done well for himself. He gives away a ton of his money um, to charity. 
But Peter Singer is also known for claiming, as he very straightforwardly and sort of kindly said to this woman, um, that people with diminished capacities simply sort of don't have as much uh, as much dignity and and therefore as as kind of as many rights um, as say animals with higher capacities, right? And that translates into Singer's um, uh, in Singer's arguments into. Um, strong support for animal rights um, and strong support also for the idea that the unborn, the aged or infirmed um, can be killed because they kind of lack important human capacities. Um, so that kind of a logic, I, I think, is becoming um, more and more prevalent, um, especially with, you know, in abate, debates over uh, abortion, euthanasia. Um, and, and so it's important to fight that and to uh, make the claim that even human beings that are more dependent um, still, have, um, still have equal human dignity. May, may I interject something there? Wouldn't you think that because of this conclusion reached by Singer and others, that there are some beings who says, who has more dignity than others because the functionality of their own beings undermine the assumption of Maritain that, yes, what is important is the conclusion, but don't worry much about the justification of those. Don't you think that undermine his assumption? Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand... On the one hand, Maritain is very clear, and I think you all have, have probably read him more than me, even if not more recently, as in yesterday afternoon. <laughs> um, Maritain is very clear that people, you know, that people can get practical conclusions and justifications for them wrong, and even disastrously wrong. Right? I mean, as as he saw in very clearly in Germany and France and in, in Russia. Right. Um, and he has plenty of critiques of, about that. Um, I think when you look at Maritain's vision for society, um, and he even sort of subtly, this I was reading Man in the State um, the other day, he even subtly identifies in the background a kind of broad Christian foundation for these ideas. And, you know, he says, well, Look, we, you know, the important thing, say, is, you know, we could focus on human dignity here. The human dignity is an important part of, you know, being a, a modern flourishing democracy. And so, you know, the important thing is to teach, you know, the kind of practical uh, conclusions that arise out of human dignity. We don't kill the disabled. We instead, you know, make sure that they have access to buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he says it's also important to teach, you know, the justifications and maybe different people will have different justifications. So they'll give they'll give different reasons why. But historically, the strongest justifications for these have come from Christianity. And so you kind of need to teach those. Um, and, and I think so. I think there is a question as to how sustainable his vision is as a society's Christian heritage breaks down and becomes rejected or forgotten. And in some ways, that's one of the things that I was trying to identify in, in my piece. You know, the, the article that I wrote was really 
was first and foremost a historical claim. It certainly wasn't a historical claim unique to me. I, I you know, I was, I was relying um, heavily on um, a classicist um, and a New Testament scholar. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Well, Christopher, where do you come into this now? That's a good question. Um, well, when I, thought, I was thinking about this question, I think it could turn into a devil's advocate question, but I'll ask it anyhow. It's um, how, what is the relationship of human dignity to human goodness? Right. And so there are a couple of, well, let me think about that. There are a couple of ways to answer that. I mean, so, or maybe there are a couple of senses in which you could talk about human dignity. And this gets into, so the, the paper that I, it, uh, this article that you reference is init was initially a paper at a conference, um, and there was another paper there uh, delivered by Alistair McIntyre, the, the great philosopher, which called into question the understanding of human dignity that most people had been using throughout the conference. So I'll, maybe I'll give a uh, sort of the understanding that I had and then the understanding that McIntyre had. I'm not fully prepared to go into all the intricacies of McIntyre argument. So for dignity, um, for, for my purposes, and I, th I think for the purposes of early, of early Christians is the, is, uh, is kind of the respect that people are worthy because they're human beings and because um, the son of God became a human being and all human beings therefore are kind of, uh, I mean, are, are made in the image of God in the sense in the book of Genesis um, but now also share a common nature um, with um, with the Son of God, um, and so they. Um, excuse me, here I have a obstreperous cell phone, um, uh, and so that um, and so that then is common to all people, even you know the very wicked or the or the depraved. Um, that uh, um, that they that they in important senses. Um, uh, that they import, in important senses are icons of, of Christ. I mean, or a metaphor that's, um, that's given is um, uh, the sort of the way in which either coinage or images of the emperor in the ancient world served as a kind of icon of the emperor. They, they, um, they stand there in place of him. Um, and so, you know, you, or the way in which an ambassador stands in, uh, uh, in for an emperor. Um, and that kind of a metaphor that is applied to human beings who stand in the place of Christ and therefore should be treated as one would treat Christ. So that's maybe one sense of human dignity. Another sense of human dignity then um, is maybe more of a moral one, um, one, in, one that focuses more on human ends um, and what it, what it most deeply means to be a human being, um, what a flourishing human life looks like, what a good moral human life looks like. And then to say, okay, well, it's possible for on that framework, some lives to have more dignity than others, right? Someone who, um, uh, you know, Mother Teresa has, more human dignity on that model than the emperor Caligula or something, right? Um, and 
I understand, you know, and so as I mentioned, Alistair McIntyre kind of underscored that element of human dignity. Um, Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, also underscores that element of human dignity. Um, and I think that that's, um, you know, that it's important to bear that sense in mind, or it's important to understand that human lives can, um, that, that human lives can gain or lose, you know, dignity in the sense of moral excellence, fulfillment of their potential. Um, but I wouldn't want to push that so far as to say that human beings lose that which is sort of that image of God that they bear um, and, and that image of, of the human Christ that they share. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, how you, you talk about the icon being icons of Christ or images of God. That kind of dignity, though, would seem to depend upon a kind of under, a Christian understanding, which is ultimately based upon revelation. Um, the other kind of dignity you're talking about seems to be more based, one could argue, um, one should be respected because of what one is, right? I mean, that's basically what you're saying. One should be respectful of what it is, but the, but the basis of human dignity seems in the first case to be more based upon a religious conception than a mm-hmm. philosophical conception. So when we're actually talking to people out there um, who might not share that or are increasingly not sharing it, how do we translate that? How is there is there a way we can access that without um, revelation? I mean, the I think his so I first off, I think that historically um, historically that the idea that I articulated just doesn't exist without Christianity. It, it doesn't appear um, it doesn't appear in, in the classical world. I don't know of it appearing in other <laughs> civilizations around the world. Um, maybe I'm happy to be kind of corrected on that. Um, but it doesn't exist without Christianity. So can it still exist, even if it doesn't have some kind of, uh, you know, even if it doesn't ultimately have some kind of Christological foundation? Um, Perhaps it can, but I think it just becomes less persuasive in some ways because it's not obvious, right? In in fact, I think it's deeply counterintuitive, right? It's deeply counterintuitive that someone who doesn't have the full dignity, you know, sort of the full capacities of an obviously excellent and flourishing human life, that that person still has the same rights and dignity as someone who does, right? Um, and And that could be because of a disability or it could be because of a crime or it could be you know, um, I mean, it's sort of because of a condition or because of their actions. Um, so I think you could, I mean, I think you can, um, you know, you, you couldn't make arguments based on, um, you know, sort of, if, if you can get people to accept that human beings are a particular kind of thing um, that has, you know, dignity because of it you know, because of human reason or sort of human capacity for higher cognition or transcendence. And you can make an argument that, look, even if those capacities aren't fully realized, 
um, because this person is the kind of being that has those, this person is still worthy of, um, of, of respect. Um, I just think that those arguments will end up sort of not being, maybe will persuade fewer people than they would if they had a shared Christian foundation. And I think we see that in, <laughs> I mean, we see that in other attempts at natural law argumentation. It's good. It can work. Um, but it helps to have a Christian framework as well. Right. So it's like what Jefferson says, the idea that all men are created equal is a self-evident truth. Um, I always thought, well, no, it isn't. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, like, um, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, it's, uh, there's has to be, reason alone is not going to achieve it. So that's, um, it, it does take a kind of, it does take the Christian sense. How we restore that is another question. Let me um, go back to Maritan briefly and, and then look at a stark alternative uh, to the Christian legacy uh, of Nietzsche, who, who you address in, in your essay. But, but Maritan first. Maritan has often been compared to John Rawls in this respect, that Rawls is looking for a kind of convergence of positions and uh, once you get that convergence, you can build on it and you really don't have to adjudicate which position is ultimately correct. Now, Maritan, in, in saying that we, we have to have uh, a, a way of moving ahead practically uh, and we can save the uh, foundational issues till later, uh, if ever, Maritad is compared to Rawls in that regard. But as is so often the case that it's almost always the case, uh, there's a difference between what people actually hold and what they're alleged to hold. So I want to give two uh, very short quotations from Maritan. And they focus not on, on dignity, but what we've already discussed as uh, adjacent to dignity, human rights. Uh, number one, Maritan says this, this is a direct quote. The problem of human rights involves the whole structure of moral and metaphysical or anti-metaphysical convictions held by each of us. So there's no dodging metaphysics or anti-metaphysics. The, the problem involves the whole structure of moral and metaphysical or anti-metaphysical convictions held by each of us. And, and now, one more citation. I am concerned with the principles as much as and more than with the conclusions and with the rational justification of human rights as much as and more than with a practical agreement thereon. I, I think we could look at that one more time. 
I am concerned with the principles as much as and more than with the conclusions and with the rational justification of human rights as much as and more than with a practical agreement thereon. I rarely see either of those passages cited. Now, somebody who would maybe maybe agree with Maritan and what's at stake here in terms of what we've got to work through would be Nietzsche, but he comes to <laughs> very opposite. Uh, well, if something's opposite, why say it's very opposite? <laughs> he comes to the opposite conclusion. Uh, and, and you'd address Nietzsche. I wonder if you could uh, take us down that path a bit, at least. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I was, the, I'll come back to Peter Singer, who we discussed earlier, um, and, uh, and then um, get, into, get into Nietzsche. I think both Singer and Nietzsche are helpful because they show what the real alternative to the Christian view, especially when it comes to things like human dignity and human rights, the real alternative to that is um, they they call they sort of call out the contradictions of a, a kind of secular liberalism that tries to find some sort of middle ground um, that tries to say, well, you know. We want to have, you know, we, we want to really maximize autonomy, but we'd like to still sort of have human <laughs> rights. And so we're going to kind of fudge around the edges. Um, and in the months, in a few days before my son was born, I found online some philosophy magazine um, that tweeted out uh, a quotation from Peter Singer, the notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life is medieval. Um, and I thought that was a great quote. I mean, obviously a bad usage of the word medieval to mean like backwards and archaic and not the kind of thing that enlightened people like us should be believing. Um, but it was perfect because it was so, it was so true. And it would be even more true if you said it's, it's patristic, right? The notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life um, is patristic. And I think that's exactly right. Um, that idea is born out of the encounter with between Christianity and the new world. Um, so Nietzsche maybe in this kind of, more tame and polite way um, gives us that alternative um, inherent human dignity has Christian roots. And if we are cut off from those Christian roots, there's no point in believing it anymore. Uh, and Nietzsche in his rather more direct, less polite way, or he's not maybe equally direct, but more sort of uh, blustery and less polite way um, says the same kind of thing um, in his, in his essay, the Greek state, he says, such phantoms as the dignity of man, the dignity of labor, are the needy products of slavedom hiding from itself. Man in himself, the absolute man, possesses neither dignity nor rights nor duties. Um, so I think he's, you know, again, I think Nietzsche is, um, is very clear in saying, as he does in, in many other respects, look, if you want to if you want to sweep away these Christian artifacts, you don't get to keep sort of some of the moral principles that you'd really like to save. You ultimately discard the whole thing and you move into something else where those who are more strong, those who are stronger, those who are more autonomous um, have more 
you know, human dignity or, or, or sort of, well, you want to discard the category of human dignity, but the will of the strong is allowed to just kind of run wild. And that's actually a, a good thing. The strong should be able to do um, what they, uh, what they can and pursue their excellence and not be hindered by these sort of weak Christian um, uh, remnants. Mario, what next? Well, <laughs> I think that uh, the issue is very, it's deep, but uh, well, uh, when I, um, I see Nietzsche uh, saying, okay, guys, the alternative to Christianity, which come from the linemen and all these liberals in the traditional um, liberalism is a fake claim because ultimately it doesn't really show what uh, a human being is. And so let's move on and have a very true atheism, as he says. So if that then is the case, and we see around us a view of dignity as autonomy, do we then, as a a part of the Christian community, um, put aside this view of enlightenment and bring it back a most uh, robust view of human dignity based on revelation. And let me um, point out something very uh, concrete. A few years uh, ago, I read an article by an Argentinian scholar, and the title was Christ is the Founder of Human Rights. Now, for some, and then there's the whole argument based on revelation that human rights are based on human dignity, human dignity is revealed by, um, by God, et cetera, et cetera. So he was accused of being an integralist or fundamentalist or any other um, label like that. So my question is, you as showing that human dignity come from revelation, and I do believe that. Uh, are we having the risk of being called all these names and we need to translate into something more secular? Well, I mean, I, I think insofar as, insofar as you can find common ground with people by using secular language or translating things, you know, that, that can be, that can be fine. I mean, if, if, you know, if you talk about, you know, sort of, again, like bringing up the example of Maritain, if, if we can agree on the ter- on terms of human dignity, even if there are sort of, um, we have different ways of arriving there or, or sort of differences around the edges, um, then that's great. And we should take advantage of that. Um, but I mean, the, but the, the historical claim that, you know, I mean, that dignity and that, and that rights come out of Christianity is just, is kind of, un, to me, that's, that's pretty irrefutable. I mean, you, you start seeing that kind of language and as I understand it in Tertullian um, in the second century, right? And then it, it grows with people like Delas Casas and, um, 
I mean, so so you can say those people are are, are wrong or, or incomplete or something, but you you can't really deny that ultimately that ultimately they have this Christian foundation, even if you want to found it somewhere else. Um, so so a I would say look, just pointing to pointing to that history doesn't mean that you know you don't think that dignity or rights can exist in a secular society, or that you can't say look let's 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 try to find sort of a more common foundation of them i think the the counter the sort of the follow-up argument would be yeah sure we can you know by all means let's focus on what we have in common in terms of practical conclusions or justifications um but when those start to you know but we shouldn't lose the sort of the primary justifications that we hold and we shouldn't be afraid to invoke those either you know um, especially when they provide the best foundation for something like human dignity um so you know i'm 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 you know i mean it's sort of like paul on the areopagus right um you know you can you can quote the classical authors you can try to kind of speak in a language that's going to appeal to your listeners and and build that common ground um but you know, but you shouldn't be afraid to point to historical progressions and point to what you think are the strongest arguments and deepest truths. But the the, the issue, I think, uh, if I understood you correctly, is that in the contemporary world, you can read constitutionalists, you can read philosopher of law, political philosophers. Ninety-eight percent of them. When they talk about dignity, they talk about perhaps moral dignity. Uh, so the worth that people achieve through action. So it's a very Kantian notion. And if you want to emphasize ontological dignity, which is based on revelation, they say, hey, that's illegitimate because that's a <clears throat> religious discourse. Then you have to make the case why this religious discourse is not irrational. And I can bring it back into the public square to discuss about that. So then the debate is translated or is moved into a different realm. You can see that in um, Benedict XVI debate with Habermas. And so that's, I think, is the point. Perhaps we need to move to something else, whether or not uh, revelation is rational in the same thing that uh, our regular, let's say, moral discourse is quote-unquote rational. So um, I think that is the the key issue. Um, I mean, you can go and read Redemptor Hominis of John Paul II, where he says explicitly the only way by which, I'm just paraphrasing, the only way by which you recognize your own humanity is through Christ. Now, if that is the case, then that's ontological uh, dignity. Now, how that you translate into <laughs> the public realm and make it more rational, um, change the language. I don't think even Maritain deal with that much. That's my, yeah. I don't know, observation is rant or question. Did you want to say anything about that rant, Nathaniel? I'm, I'm not sure that I have. I'm not sure that I have much to add beyond what I. I mean, beyond what I what I said before. So, 
And it's not really a rant. It was a development. A <laughs> exactly. Development, which is an invitation for Christopher to join us again. Thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, that's. A, I, I think. Um, how do you see? I mean, when we talk about dignity and we we draw it into rights, what what is the, what is the distinction between those two things? Now, I know there are some Christian thinkers who will claim um, that the whole idea of human rights is not Christian at all. It, it's merely a an in, 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 it's a invention of the Enlightenment. What is what is the right in relationship to a dignity, to human dignity? Um, I mean, this is so part of the, part of the reason that my paper dealt with early Christianity is that my primary expertise is in early and medieval Christianity, um, where where things like this are still at a very nascent stage. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, offer offer some thoughts, but they're maybe not as educated or developed as they should be. Um, in my mind, human dignity. Um, I mean, in my mind, if human dignity is the idea that human beings are in some way, you know, special or worthy of respect, irrespective of particular merit or ability then rights are kind of just a further enumeration of what kind of of how that cashes out um, and what they, what you are owed by society as, and what you owe others in society as a result of that dignity. Um, I mean, and, and then you can sort of, I don't know, I give sort of truisms about rights, you know, rights being paired with duties and you, you have negative rights, you have positive rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think ultimately the idea that, you know, you have, um, that you have a right to human life or a right to education, that that's ultimately founded on the fact that, you know, all human beings have an inherent worth and therefore based on that you can make particular claims um, about what they what they are owed and you know again both positively and negatively what people should stand out of the way and, and let them do without interference and what they actually need as part of being dependent finite creatures yeah, yeah i think i uh, i that's what my, that's been my thought in relation to in relation to these arguments Oftentimes, those arguments proceed based upon the notion of, of abuse of the term rights, so that one gets a right to everything, including toothbrushes. And, right, uh, and, and sure, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the thing that I found fascinating, again, not to just continually refer back to this, this one conference that I was a, a part of, and if you give me a moment, I can try to find, um, uh, if I, I can try to see if I have it, but you know, as again, as I understand it, rights language first is, is, you know, sort of the roots of rights language comes from thinkers like Tertullian, who are trying to, who are trying to make claims to the Roman, you know, to imperial Romans about what is owed to them as persons um, and about, you know, whether or not God, as they've variously define it wants coerced worship or whether people should be free, whether they, whether they, um, whether they have a use, which is the Latin word for right. Um, 
to, you know, worship God according to their own kind of lights of conscious conscience, um, you know, and you already have that in the beginning in the second and third century. And obviously it develops more later on, but I think it's very important to not throw out that Christian tradition just because other people get it wrong and take it in spurious directions later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we could connect at this point with our, our older brothers in the faith, uh, the, the Jewish legacy that we have in the old Testament. We see that we are uh, created just a little less than the angels just a little less than the angels, and it doesn't say. Uh, and those of us who are intelligent are created a little less than the angels, uh, or those of us who have achieved autonomy due to our, our way of living are created less, a little less than the angels. We are all of us created a little less than the angels. And uh, I think in the Psalms we have a, a clear statement of, an ontological dignity, and then to the transition to rights, I think we could uh, very well look at uh, the first claim, and we think of a right as a claim, the first claim that the people of God present to Pharaoh, uh, they understand that they have a duty to worship the Lord their God, and because of that duty, they have a right to some time, <laughs> to some, some opportunity. So that's the very first demand. We demand our rights, Pharaoh. The very first demand is the demand uh, to be able to honor their duty to worship the Lord their God. Uh, now, uh, I think one of the points of your, your essay that struck home to me especially, and you've mentioned the patristic uh, and not just the medieval dimension of, of rights talk, uh, is your uh, appeal to St. Gregory uh, of Nyssa with regard to the incompatibility of Christianity with slavery. I think that's very early and is something that we ought to be much more aware of. And then I was especially struck by, and let's say he was influenced by Basil, uh, the Emperor Theodosius and his drawing on Christianity to uh, object to an entrenched prostitution. When we look at, insofar as I've been able to dig around, when we look at Augustine, And when we look at Thomas, uh, we have the same basic argument. Uh, Prostitution is a sorry business altogether, but were there not prostitution, uh, the lust, (laughs) the lust of men would overcome the society. And therefore, it's perhaps better to let prostitution remain in place. And where we can go fast forward, we shouldn't go too fast forward, but we have the contemporary effort to, well, first of all, never use the word prostitution. <laughs> and never use the word prostitute. We're talking about sex workers. And sex workers perform uh, an important function in society. 
And because that, among other things, they should have a right to organize and an enlightened uh, polity will recognize the uh, important contribution of sex workers. But in, in fact, what we're looking at, whether in uh, Augustine or Thomas or in the most recent editorial in the LA Times, is a, a, a complete uh, lack of regard for the dignity of the prostitute. If we look to the documents of Vatican II, and if we look to recent statements uh, uh, of the Magisterium on prostitution, what we have is prostitution is wrong in and of itself, first and foremost, because of its abuse of women. And now in the enlightened Los Angeles and in the not so enlightened Rome of classical times uh, of males as well, we have a violation of their fundamental dignity. And I think uh, Theodosius picked up on this very well. Wonder if you have any further thoughts on that. Yes, I think um, that's actually a great example of what happens when dignity recedes and when, when kind of a Christian understanding of human dignity begins to recede in a society and when the and when the view that it's important to maximize the autonomy of those who can exercise it um, kind of comes to take that the place of the Christian view of dignity, right? So the idea that, um, you know, a, a number of the elements of uh, sex positive feminism, including um, you know, what it has to say about um, prostitution and, um, and, uh, and sex work, right. Uh, sort of works if, or is based on the idea that there are women who choose to engage in this as work and we should not be standing in their way. And just like we wouldn't choose, you know, just like we wouldn't oppose anyone to, work as a waitress or a professor or anything else. Um, but the reality is that most people don't choose to be prostitutes, right? They are coerced into it, um, which is what someone like Gregory of Nyssa and Emperor Theodosius very much understood. But there's this idea that we, we sort of, we, we have to pass over the fact of coercion or we have to kind of try to ameliorate it as best we can so that we can protect the autonomy of, of the minuscule few who actually have chosen this. Um, and I think it's, it's much more, um, uh, it's much more honest and, and true to reality to say as sort of PS previous generations of feminists who were not, you know, sort of card carrying Christian believers in human dignity um, as they had no problem saying, look, this is an inherently um, coercive and corrupting practice and that's why it should be um, that's why it, it should be outlawed um, or that's why it should be in some way severely regulated um, uh, and so and it's it's because of that so I guess let me let me back up the point is that uh, the point that I'm, I'm trying to make with that um, is that when you get when you depart from a Christian understanding of human dignity and you move towards um, the desire to just maximize the autonomy of those who have it, of those who have uh, various freedoms and capacities, 
you end up trotting on the rights of those who can't exercise those capacities, those who are more vulnerable for one way or the other. Um, and I think that's something that's something that we see sort of play out in um, in our society. That hasn't totally answered your question. Do you want me to talk more about Gregory um, and uh, and Theodosius and kind of what their arguments are? Or? Well, I think that even given the readership of public discourse, I think uh, Gregory and uh, St. Basil and Theodosius in this regard are very little known. I think you provided a real service in opening that historical chapter to us. Yeah, I mean, it was astonishing. One of the things that I was very surprised to read when I, um, when I initially read the sources that I was that I was drawing on, um, uh, you know, the 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 in particular in this case, um, uh, the uh, classicist named Kyle Harper, um, who teaches at the University of Oklahoma. You know, Harper notes that even though today we instinctively think of slavery as a great evil, one of the greatest evils, um, slavery was an entirely normal human institution for most of history. Um, it was accepted. It was understood to be just part of the way the world worked. Um, and most early Christians, right? We, we don't see a lot of condemnations of slavery. In fact, we see, you know, the apostle Paul basically saying, okay, slavery is a given. Here's how to sort of operate as a Christian within this framework, right? The Apostle Paul never comes out and says, slavery is wicked, it must be destroyed, right? He says, sort of, here's how to be a Christian master, here's how to be a Christian slave. Um, but I think you get in the gospel and in, as, and in its sort of articulation and development by Paul, um, you get the seeds that come to fruition um, later, I mean, especially centuries later when Christians lead the abolition movement. Um, but um, in the fourth century, you have the first recorded opposition to slavery as an institution anywhere in the world. And that comes from Gregory of Nyssa, right? And Gregory of Nyssa is mostly known as, as like a, a kind of monastic and mystical theologian. He's not a titan of moral theology or moral philosophy. Um, but he preaches this homily on Ecclesiastes um, and and the author of Ecclesiastes, who's known to us as Kohelet, um, in Ecclesiastes two seven writes, "I bought male and female slaves, and who had and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." And Gregory sees this as kind of a great crescendo in Kohelet's confession of his own pride, right? And and so Gregory looks at this and and says. Um, you know, I mean, I'm just going to read here for a bit. You condemn man to slavery when his nature is free and possesses free will, and you legislate in competition with God, overturning his law for the human species, the one made on the specific terms that he should be the owner of the earth and appointed to government by the creator, him you bring under the yoke of slavery as though defying and fighting against the divine decree. So Gregory goes on, and I'm not going to sort of read the full thing, but he has three, effectively three problems with slavery. Um, first, that it's a kind of a prideful idolatry in which human beings 
try to take the place of God, who's the ulti- ultimately the owner of human beings and the creator of human beings. Um, second, um, that taking a human being who has been given free will and appointed Lord over the dominion of creation um, and subjecting that human being like he were any another, like he were subjecting that human being to yourself, like he were any other animal um, subverts the law of God. Um, And then thirdly, kind of coming back to human beings being created in the image of God and then Christ, um, uh, you know, the, the word of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, God made man in his image and likeness. Um, and man therefore kind of exceeds any price that could be offered for him. Right. We talk about human life as, as priceless. Um, so the idea that a human being is offered for sale is almost like trying to sell God, um, right. You're selling you're selling this thing that's an icon of something that's even more priceless than we are, right? Which is just a kind of idolatrous affrontery. Um, so those are the, those are the issues that Gregory takes um, with slavery. And, and there's kind of, you know, there's something analogous that happens with prostitution and sexual coercion. You know, it, it's not as though the Roman, you know, sort of the Roman world before Christianity is just a happy place where, autonomous actors go around um, having fun without the moral baggage of Christianity. Um, You know, in fact, there are flagrantly double standards um, for sexual conduct in the ancient world that involve those who have honor and those who don't. And people who are slaves or men or women without honor are just objects for the sexual energy of those who have more honor and more physical power. Um, And so, um, you know, one of the first things that you get um, is, uh, comes from Gregory of Nyssa's brother, Basil the Great, where he talks about, where he kind of clearly identifies that women who are sexually coerced are um, who are serving as prostitutes or as slaves, right? And in, and in many cases, sexual coercion comes because people people simply are are forcing themselves on their slaves. And public prostitutes are for people who can't afford slaves, right? Um, and and so so Basil the Great says, well, look, people who are uh, people who are slaves or 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 prostitutes, right, aren't responsible for act that go against their will. They're not, they're not defiled by things that they don't want that people impose on them. Augustine makes a similar argument in the opening chapters of City of God, where he's talking about, um, you know, women who've been raped in the barbarian conquest. Um, and then that, that kind of line of argument leads to um, this decree by Theodosius II in 428 that um, you've been referencing that I mentioned. Um, that um, that cracks down on prostitution in a serious way, again, in a way that is impossible historically before that. There's there's no justification. These are you know um, these men and women, mostly women, just don't 
matter. It's sort of like the pagan world doesn't have the eyes to see what we come to understand as their human dignity. And something analogous takes place in terms of um, the poor. Christianity creates the category of the poor as in indigent people who, because of their dignity, not because of their relationship to me or the benefit that they can accrue to me, are owed help and succor. Um, and therefore, we need to go do something about it, right? So in, in important ways, Christianity just provides society with the ability to see something that was heretofore invisible to them. Um, at least that's the claim that you would make if you're a Christian and you think that it's there. For someone like Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche would come in and say, well, no, Christianity just provides a kind of simulacrum. You know, it, 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 it tricks you into thinking that those slaves and prostitutes actually matter. And of course they didn't matter. They weren't great. They weren't able to do anything. Um, so, yeah. And you give a, a comparable analysis of uh, Christianity's impact on and liberation of the Dalit, the untouchables. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to mention that. I mean, because in some ways it's easy it's easy to think of all this as something that just happens in the past, right? That um, you know, Christianity enters Roman society and then it gives us all these things that we take for granted as people who have grown up in a society that has Christian roots ever since. But what's fascinating to me is that in the 20th century, well, before the 20th century, um, but, uh, but even into the 20th century, as Christianity spreads throughout the world, it has similar effects on, um, on those people and civilizations that it encounters, right? I mean, one of the striking things to refer to, it, to, refer to it, a different case before coming back to the Dalits, one of the striking things from Benedict XVI's trip to Africa a number of years ago was his repeated insistence on how Christianity frees you from um, magic and and sort of the superstitions of shamans and witch doctors and things, right? And and that's not something that is it, you know that I have ever felt deeply <laughs> afflicted by or something. But that that is a manifestly important development um, in. African society as it encounters Christianity, right? And so there's something analogous that happens um, with um, in in India, um, especially the example that I, I gave was in the 1930s. Um, the Methodist Bishop of India, you know, surveys lots of members of the untouchable caste and, and kind of inquires into why they convert to Christianity, what changes for them. Um, and in many cases, if not most, the motive for conversion lies in the belief that Christianity offers them a life of dignity and hope um, and brings them out of degradation and subservience. Um, it, it frees them from this kind of ontological serfdom or ontological second nature that they would otherwise have. Um, and there's this strikingly beautiful um, uh, quote where one one of the the untouchable converts says i wanted to become a christian so that i could become a man 
None of us was a man. We were dogs. Only Jesus could make men out of us. Um, and I think that's really a, a, a kind of powerful testament to the way in which Christianity brings about the understanding of human dignity. Um, yes, there are other ways in which you could conceive of human dignity. You could try to find other grounds. But historically, only Jesus has made men and women out of us. Um, and I think he provides the strongest rationale for, um, for that still today. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. We've, we've come to the end of our hour. And as always, we, we want to read and reflect for a few moments on the gospel of the day. And this gospel is from Mark. Jesus summoned the crowd again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that enters one from the outside can defile that person, but the things that come from out, the things that come out, the things that come out from within are what defile. When he got home away from the crowd and his disciples, they questioned him about the parable. He said to them, are even you likewise without understanding? Do you not realize that everything that goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart, but the stomach and passes out into the latrine? Thus he declared all foods clean. But what comes out of man, that is what defiles him. From within the man, from his heart, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within, and they defile. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you again, Nathaniel. Thank you, Thank you all for having me again and all the very best uh, on your work in the coming months. Well, we don't work very hard. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> we, we, just, we just keep at it. <laughs> just keep all the very best on your keeping at it. Yeah. Oh, we're up to 230 episodes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And some of them have been episodic. <laughs> But, but not with you, Nathaniel. We very much appreciate your kind. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.